All right, I want to talk to you today about a famous storm. There's one in Scripture. There's quite a few in Scripture. But I want to talk to you about one in particular, and that's Jesus right out of the baptismal event in the Jordan River. John the Baptist baptized him. The dove landed on him, representing the Holy Spirit's power, and stayed on him. He went in the power of the Spirit into the wilderness. But before we get into that storm, or those three storms, really, common to man, I want to to mention that this weekend, and some of you will know this and remember this, this is the 41st anniversary of the blizzard of 78. Anybody remember? Well, it's memorable. I've been here for 25 years, and we've had a lot of storms in the last 25 years in New England. We've We've gotten used to some really severe weather. But this storm was unique. And one of the unique things about this storm, by the way, a blizzard is considered a blowing snow Winds in excess of at least 35 miles an hour. Visibilities less than a quarter of a mile. And lasting at least three hours. The blizzard of 78 completely wiped that idea out. It was far, far beyond that. 100 mile an hour winds. Visibility probably down almost to zero. Four inches an hour of snow. And it lasted for better, the better part of two days. So nonstop storm. Now, the reason I mention it is I was living in North Carolina, and I had a suit that weighed about one ounce that was a spring suit that I put on. I came up Sunday night, spent the night in Haverhill, had a meeting in Haverhill the next day. I had on my one-ounce suit, which was temperature tested down to about 65 degrees. Anything below that, you'd be cold in it. And so I'm up here with no change of clothes in a motel, and all the guys all of a sudden went up to the window during our meeting on Monday morning, and they started looking up in the sky. We all left the building. I went back to my room, but it was too late, and I got snowed in for four or five days. And so I remember that blizzard vividly. There was no warning. Nobody knew that blizzard, though there was an announcement about a storm approaching, Nobody knew how bad that storm was going to be. If they had, they would have never been on the road. The highways were completely stopped. All economic activity ceased. You know, today, when we have a snowstorm, five snow trucks go by on the first flake, right? The road is clear, and it never gets filled up. Sand, snow, salt, everything, it's taken care of with a very few exceptions. Something was different back in 1978. You know, the weather reporting, the media, something was different. They changed many of the laws. After the stumbling, the stranded, the blind, the cut off from help, the loss, the suffering, crushed people crushed by fear, frantic, panicking, and even dying. A hundred people died. 2,500 houses crushed. So that was a bad storm. But the worst thing about that storm is nobody was prepared. Nobody was prepared. Government didn't step in. News, weather didn't step in. Now, we occasionally will have a, have a storm. 
where we think, why did they overreact to this storm? The winter of 78, the blizzard of 78 is the reason we overreact today because we're trying to not have people captured out on the highway, buried in snow, because that's what happened. So, storms. Jesus is trying to prepare us. Jesus is trying to prepare us for the storms of this life. He went first. He went without sin into the wilderness. He went intentionally to be tempted by Satan. Nobody in this room would do something that crazy. Not intentionally. And yet what I contend today from the, in this message is that all of us today have two voices in our heads. One is the Word of God made flesh who dwelled among us, who rose from the dead on the third day. And the other voice is the voice of the one who met Jesus in the wilderness. And his voice, even now, in some of you, even now online, that voice is speaking arguments against the kingdom of God, arguments against the identity of Christ. Those two voices is what I'm addressing today in this message, in which I want to warn you. Jesus warned us. He went before us. His victory is our victory. His insight, his wisdom belongs to us. In one place in the scripture, it says, if you, James says, if you lack wisdom, pray, and God will give you wisdom. Solomon was known the world over. He's the most famous man on earth because of his wisdom. People, kings, queens came to Jerusalem to see the mighty king, the wise king. God gives us that same wisdom and even beyond that same wisdom because we have a savior that's part of our wisdom and knowledge. We have a kingdom that's part of our wisdom and knowledge that's not of this world. It's a kingdom of compassion and love and protection and life. The alternative is death, self-obsession, pleasure-seeking, and that's what the, the war, and death, and that's what the world is offering us. That's what that other voice is offering us. Death or life, life or death. So Matthew 4, verse 1 through 11, if you will find that and stand together, and let's read the Word of God. And let's read what our Savior did for us. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, very famous numbers in Scripture, 40 years, 40 days, 40 nights. He fasted and became very hungry. So that's his condition and his status as the, as the devil is tempting him. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Is that some sort of formula where if you're the son of God, if you're a child of God, it's your job to turn stones into bread? Is that, is that written anywhere? Well, that's what Satan is doing. He's twisting the reality of who Jesus is and what his, what his mission is. 
what his identity is, just as he twists ours. But Jesus told him, no, the Scriptures say, and that's our answer. The Word of God says our answer, our rebuff is always the Scriptures, the Word of God. Get into the Scriptures, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't know the Lord yet, He is the Word of God, active, alive, and living in this, in this world. People do not live by bread alone, Jesus recounted from Scripture, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's the formula for life. It's not about bread. It's about the Word of God. That's the life. That's the true bread, which Jesus is. So here's the true bread answering Satan, saying the words of God are above all of the pleasures of this life. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you're the Son of God, jump off what the Scriptures say. To the top of the temple, the holy of holies is the top of the temple. That's the highest point. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is God. And Satan, this punk, this punk takes him up there and tells him to jump off. Jesus answers. He will order... Uh, Satan continues, he will order his angels to protect you, and he's quoting from Psalm 91. Jesus knows the Scriptures. Satan knows the Scriptures. Satan twists the Scriptures. Christ asserts the Scriptures. Satan says he will, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the Scriptures say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of the very highest mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Jesus, the Word made flesh. Jesus, the Word with God. Jesus, God himself from the beginning, before anything was. Jesus, through whom the Word of God, through whom all things were made. The kingdoms that Satan is showing him were made by him. The punk, he comes up with that, with that oblique argument, and Jesus answers him. He says, get out of here, Satan, for the Scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Get out of here, Satan. <clears throat> Ultimately, that is the answer for Satan. Get out of here, because the Scriptures say. So God is arming us with this, this, this story from the, from the wilderness. Then the devil went away, and the angels came and took care of Jesus. Another, another translation says, Satan waited for another opportunity. You may be seated. Thank you. So what is, what is prayer? What does this conversation reveal about our relationship? Well, Jesus understands the devil's tactics. From the garden, serpent, speaking to, to Eve, deceiving her. Murdering mankind in the process. 
He remembers, Jesus remembers in the wilderness out of Egypt when Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, just as Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. During those 40 days of testing down below in the valley, they melted down their jewelry and made a golden calf to worship mammon. Mammon is, is, is nothing more than materialism, the pleasures of this world. And they melted down a jewelry and made a, a, an idol to mammon. So 40 days in the desert, 40 days in the wilderness. So Jesus wants us to be prepared. He takes Satan's best shot in that wilderness without sinning. I, I told the folks yesterday, and I'll tell you, 51 years this month, a Christian, Satan met me within the first few weeks after I was powerfully, just sovereignly, miraculously saved, literally from death. And Satan met, started speaking into my head within a few weeks. And what he was telling me was, you're not a Christian. You're not really a Christian. Look at the thought in your head. Well, guess who put the thought there? I mean, it was a team effort. I'm going to be honest. It was me plus him, right? Isn't that how Satan works best? We join hands. We have a little conversation in the garden. And Satan says, hey, God didn't really mean you couldn't, you know, you can, you can bend the rules a little bit. You're different. You're special. You can bend the rules. That's not what God said. His protection over us is absolute. So when Jesus was asked by his disciples in a little microburst storm, they were very concerned because John the Baptist was being taught, was teaching his disciples how to pray, and they weren't being taught. So they were a little bit jealous or envious of that teaching. So they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. He started off like this. He said, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will, parenthesis, cup of suffering. When Jesus prays in the garden of Gethsemane, what does he pray? He says, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. Three times he prays that. And then he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray about the kingdom and about the Father and about the holiness of God, when he teaches us about that kingdom, he wants to use us to demonstrate the power of that kingdom in the present tense pointing the way to that future when Jesus will return through the clouds as he left in glory, and he will establish his kingdom. And it will be perfect, and there will be no more sin. There will be no more loneliness, no more depression, no more sickness. There'll be no more loss or failure. It'll be a perfect kingdom. And so he says, May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So three storms. First one, 
Satan sows doubt about our identity in Christ, about your identity in Christ. How does he do that? He says, if you are a Christian, turn this stone into bread or some such ridiculous request, some such ridiculous expectation and requirement. If you're a Christian, the very question challenges your identity in Christ. The very question tries to sever the relationship with God, which is always, always, always what Satan is trying to do when he speaks to us. He's trying to get us to build a golden calf that we can see and touch, and we can circle around it and scream and yell and shriek. He's trying to get us to do that rather than say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your glory, your power, your majesty, your dominion. I cry out to you in my weakness and brokenness that you might put your strength in me and your grace in me because that's what God does when we pray that prayer. So we begin with the glory of God to overcome the power of Satan and the lies of Satan in our lives. So Satan sows doubt about identity. He says, turn the bread into stone. Two voices speaking. The voice that he's calling out of us or or trying to place into us is the voice of hedonism. And hedonism is simply the pursuit of pleasure, fleshly lusts, finding our identity in sensory things instead of in the spiritual power of God in our lives. So Lord Byron, the poet in, in Great Britain, He literally chased a life of sensation until it destroyed him. And many today are doing the same thing. So Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, which is the time when God gave the Ten Commandments, established a covenant with man. And in that verse, we find that same reference to bread. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus later on will say, to his disciples, I only say what I hear the Father saying. I only do what I see the Father doing. So Jesus is literally carrying that out when he says every word from the mouth of God. That is what motivates my life. That is the impetus of my life. That is the, that, that's the energy of my life. The words I hear him speak. Jesus came. He never spoke his own words. He spoke the words of the Father. Second part of the prayer. Again, glorious God. In the beginning of that little Lord's Prayer that we learned, many of us learned when we were in in Sunday school years and years ago for me. And the second part of that prayer is give us today the food we need. Provision. We're powerless. We can't do it without you. The paycheck comes from you. The food in the refrigerator comes from you. The food in the pantry comes from you. The food in the restaurant comes from you. The credit card that needs to be paid off comes from you. It gets paid by you. All provision comes through you. And then we get to the crux of the matter. 
is our dis-ease in this life. Our dis-ease is sin. And so we say, forgive our sins. And we hear Jesus on the cross. The first thing he said, which the thief on the cross heard clearly, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These are the people that are crucifying him. And he's asking the Father to forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And so we call upon God in utter dependency, forgive us. Receive your forgiveness. Now and only now can we forgive. We cannot forgive one another until we've been forgiven, until the gratitude of God is overflowing out of our lives. The second storm, Satan encourages our striving in unbelief. This is so subtle. It's so incredibly subtle. Jump from the temple's highest point. Jump from the Holy of Holies. Jesus will be, is the Holy of Holies. He will take the temple and he will put it in our bodies. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit in Christ. Jesus is sitting on the top of his Father's presence inside that holy place. Seventy feet below, in the Ark of the Covenant, is the, is the very presence of God. And he tells him to jump off, like a kid's game. He's mocking the temple. He's mocking the Word of God. The striving and unbelief slips into us. We were just talking backstage. When Abraham... And, and Sarah were waiting for that little baby that, that God promised at age 90. And Sarah laughed when she heard God say that he would give her a baby. And when they were waiting, they got impatient and they started striving. And, they, and so Abraham went and slept with the maid and a, and a baby was born. And that baby was known as Ishmael. And most of us are from that lineage of Ishmael. Striving produces Ishmael. This particular one, God is promoting egoism, the pride of life. It's a version of striving and unbelief. We don't believe in God, we believe in ourselves. So he, he quoted Psalm 91, which said that, that the angels would protect his heel. It also says, you will trample upon lions and cobras and crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. This is referencing what Jesus did and will do what he will complete when he comes from heaven. And that is, he will crush Satan. We'll see before the end that he actually involves us in that process. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to the serpent in the garden. And when he speaks, he says, I will cause hostility, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. All mankind will come from, from that, that birth, that first birth, those first births in, in the garden. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is actually alluding to God's provision of salvation for us through the cross. So through the cross, Jesus... Heel was struck by Satan, but Jesus crushed 
the head of Satan when he was raised from the dead. When he went down into, into death and took the keys of death and sin. So Genesis is, is promising that. And God is carrying that out through His Son. The third storm in the wilderness, Satan offers fame for worship, an even exchange. If you will worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms you can see from this high mountain. Those kingdoms, the world created by Jesus, created by the Word of God, already belong to Him. This is the cry of materialism. Has anybody ever heard of materialism? You know, it's the you are what you just purchased from Amazon reality. You know, your latest box on the front steps, and, you, and it's a really big box, and your neighbors see it, right? Wow, look at them. They're really something. They've got a really big box from Amazon. And so we become what we purchase. We become what we're... What we, we be, Shopping becomes our reality. In America, we hardly even notice it. It's so easy. Box shows up. I mean, you don't even have to get in the car anymore. You do have to open the front door, and sometimes it's raining and cold, and you still have to bring it in. I mean, they should bring it in the house for you, right? <laughs> That's what materialism really should be. I mean, it's, it's crazy, I, I, and I'm as much a part of it as everybody else is, or I would assume everybody else is. So Satan would usurp God's throne, and he would insert materialism. He would shift from the worship of God, which we started with, remember, in the prayer, hallowed be your name, to the front steps, hallowed be your name, hallowed be your name, and we take the box in. I know I'm, I'm pushing the limit on that metaphor, but there is some reality in that. What Satan was trying to do in this third temptation is he's trying to shift us so that, we, that our fame and, and what we receive from the, the world around us becomes the only thing we care about, the only thing we think about. And so our worship is shifted to the things of this world instead of to, to the holy God. So Jesus answers, you must fear the Lord and your God and serve him alone. He goes again back to the Ten Commandments, goes back to that wilderness experience, the covenant between God and the people of Israel, where Jesus took those two main commands and he said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that, love your neighbor. And out of that whole thing, Love yourself. A lot of you struggle with loving yourself to this day. I mean, you may have been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you aren't a Christian yet. You may still be struggling with loving yourself. It happens when we love Him, receive His forgiveness from the cross. When we, like the thief on the cross, get excited, He's moments from dying. And he gets excited and he said, don't you know who he is? We're, we deserve death. The other individual on the cross, the other criminal, he challenges Jesus. He says, if you're really the son of God, where does that come from? 
that comes all the way from that wilderness experience with Jesus. If you're the Son of God, if you're really the Son of God, then get down from the cross and get us off of these crosses before it's too late. Pull the spikes out of us. Bring us down. You're not God because you're not even saving yourself. So those things come into our lives, those doubts, those, those arguments come in. That's the voice in the wilderness that was trying to trip Jesus up but failed completely because Jesus answered with every word from the Father's mouth. He answered from the nature of God and the words of God, and he did not answer from the nature and the, the words of this world, the culture. He doesn't preach from culture. He preaches from what God says, and so, so will we. So if we go back to Isaiah 14, we find this, these verses. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth. You who destroyed the nations of the world, for you said to yourself, I will descend to the heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. It's horrifying to realize that there really are people on this earth living today who think that way because Satan has got such a powerful voice in their ear, in their lives. Satan can use anybody. Satan can speak through anybody. Get behind me, Satan. Anybody remember where that is? That's Jesus talking to Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Get behind me, Satan. Anybody can be used. Anybody can be listening to that other voice. Anybody can become a minion of Satan. Momentarily, yes. It was quite painful that day for Peter. He got sifted as wheat by Satan because he became a part of Satan's web, and it tried to put that web around Jesus. Jesus said later, what does it benefit you? What do you gain? If you get the whole world, all that, all that Satan has promised, if you get the whole world, but you lose your soul, he says, can anything be more valuable than your soul? So the final part of this prayer, again, utter dependency upon God, utter surrender to God, the Lord's Prayer. The template for prayer. He's not intending us to read that prayer over and over. We pray, and don't let us yield to temptation. We're not saying, from now on, I'm not going to yield to temptation. I'm writing my January list. I am no longer going to surrender to, to that temptation. I'm not going to do it anymore, right? That's a human, fleshly thing to say and, and to, to commit to. It will fail. We're weak. But what we say, what is, what is supernatural, what is the power of God over our lives and our families is, Lord, don't let us sin. Don't let us be tempted. 
For our church, we pray. And I'm inviting all of you to come and pray during services. Make a, make a commitment in your life to come and 15 minutes at the start of each service, we pray through the service. So somebody's upstairs praying right now while I'm speaking, while you're listening, while the online audience is listening. And they're praying for you and me and that online audience. They're praying for the kids over there in the other side. They're praying for all the people that serve, that they will be blessed and they won't give up and they won't lose heart because it's hard work being a Christian. It's hard work serving God. And so God is going to rescue us from the evil one. Final verse, Romans 16. Paul speaking in the last chapter of Romans. He's speaking of this battle, these two voices. He said, for your obedience is known to all. This is he was writing from Corinth to the Roman church. So that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. See the difference. Know the difference. Discern between the two voices. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He ends with grace. It's not our commitment. It's not our promise. We're promise breakers. He's a promise keeper. Christ is the promise keeper. He's the one that comes through. He's the one that's faithful. He's the one that's without sin. We need a Savior because we can't stop doing what is wrong, but Christ can work through us to keep us from sin.